0: We'll begin this evening by sitting together for just a few minutes, bringing your awareness into your body, simple direct awareness of sitting, the posture contact points. (coughs) Opening to sound. Hearing, hearing sounds far, sounds near, sounds arising, sustaining and passing naturally, nothing to do, nothing to hold on to, nothing to push away, simply hearing. And in a natural way, as the awareness moves inward, opening to the breath, the experience of breath, one breath at a time. One inhalation, beginning, middle, all the way through to its end. One exhalation from its beginning all the way through to the end. Simple, direct experience of breathing. Just how it is. One breath. One breath. One breath. poem called Tilico Lake. In this high place, it is as simple as this. Leave everything you know behind. Step toward the cold surface. Say the old prayer of love. And open both arms. Those who come with empty hands will stare into the lake astonished there in the cool light, reflecting pure snow, the true shape of your own face. So in this high place, Taos Mountains this place, right here. What brought us here? What seeds brought us to this retreat? We have talked about this off and on through our days practicing metta. I'd like to just look at it again. The seeds of our spiritual practice the questionings, the deep murmurings, the wonderings, the yearnings in our hearts, in our minds. These things that humans have felt and asked forever and ever and ever, regardless of culture, regardless of time, history. I think that I could safely say that intuitively that's what the deepest motivation of our coming to this high place. What's life about? What's death about? Who am I? What do I really need to be happy? to be at ease, to live with deep ease. The questions, the murmurings, the wonderings, the yearnings that humans have felt forever. Each of us has a body that's very sensitive, very delicate. We're very vulnerable in our bodies and our bodies are always changing, constantly changing. We're young, our body's young, it's healthy, gets old, gets sick, dies. It happens to every one of us, all of us, no exceptions. And occasionally I wonder, and I'm sure you do, how can this happen? Why does this happen? How can it be? Our minds constantly changing also. We're angry, we're sad, we're calm, we're agitated, all within a day, all within a few minutes, within a few seconds. And just as the changes in our body happen, The changes in our mind happen. And we can't control these changes, body or mind. They simply just happen. In the process of our lives, from our childhood on, we're always looking for things. We're looking for places, people, jobs, situations activities, experiences to bring us some kind of sustaining satisfaction some kind of ease some kind of ongoing contentment Most of our lives are often filled with an enormous amount of busyness a lot of doing, a lot of achieving performing, striving striving towards perfection whatever that is and sometimes in not very clear or or very healthy ways very often in this doing in this striving trying trying to live up to images or create images that either our culture or our families or ourselves have set up for us and so our inner world and our outer world isn't always a place of peace, a place of ease. All of this doing and trying can sometimes be quite painful, quite uncomfortable, and in very specific ways for each of us. And it takes its toll. We pay for it with our lives, so to say. And so for each of us, when these difficult aspects of our life are more predominant, or maybe we're just more aware of them at certain times. We feel them more clearly at certain times. These are the times when these questions might come forth. This questioning from our heart. And in this there's a kind of yearning, a kind of calling, and a sense that there must be something There must be something different, something besides all of this struggle, all of this striving. We have this sense inside of us, or we wouldn't be here, that there must be some kind of contentment, some kind of ease that isn't dependent on all of this doing, all of this trying, and this constant, constant changing of everything. There must be some ease, some well-being, possible, no matter what's going on in our body, no matter what's going on in our mind, no matter what's going on in the world around us. We wouldn't be here if we didn't have some kernel of that sense. Sometimes we forget or we don't remember There's a difference I learned when I was teaching in Poland between forgetting and remembering. So sometimes we forget and sometimes we don't remember. And sometimes we don't know how or where to look. And so we might expend an enormous amount of energy, an enormous amount of time doing things and looking in places that don't, that really can't offer us this enduring sense of well-being. this sense of ease, this sense of authenticity, this experience of living gracefully in the world. We're often looking, we're doing, we're trying, searching in our confusion and in our forgetfulness outside of ourselves, outside of our heart, our mind, our body. We're we're not aware then, we're not awake we're not in touch with ourself, our true self, our very natural true self. We're confused, or we've forgotten. And so we're looking for this sustaining peace, this ease everywhere, where, except where we can actually find it. When Siddhartha Gotama, that was the Buddha's name before he became the Buddha, the one who knows. When Siddhartha Gautama was a young boy, about six years old, he attended with his parents, who were the king and the queen at that time in the country that is now Nepal, he attended the Spring Plowing Festival every year the king and the queen attended and they took Siddhartha when he was six years old. He was seated quietly under a rose apple tree, watching his father and all the nobles, the poor men, the rich men, all alike, plowing the earth together. And he was sitting there watching this with the very alert attention that young children can very often and do very often give to what they're involved in, what their situation is. Sometimes it skips around a lot, but Siddhartha was giving this alert and sustained, in his case, attention to all of this happening. He was aware of the plowing and the earth breaking open in these even wave-like furrows. He saw the heat coming up out of the earth, kind of shimmering off the, the broken open soil. And he was aware of the human beings and the sweat shining off their faces, off their backs, and the straining of the bodies of the humans and of the oxen who were plowing. He was aware of the sunshine and he was aware of it reflecting and flashing, that catching of a flash off the harness, the brass harnesses. And he saw and he felt this kind of ongoing, in certain ways, senseless, plodding rhythm of the hooves of the oxen, the sound, the constant sound of the cowbells ringing, and the yells and calls of the men rolling on and on and on. The birds overhead calling diving into the broken earth picking up the earthworms and the uh, grubs and the bodies of mice that had been broken by the plow. He was seeing all of this as the story goes. (laughs) I wasn't there, but all of this very obvious laboring and devouring hard work difficulty, suffering, dying, endlessly going on, along with all the gaiety and the uh, festivity of the day. And all of this broke in on young Siddhartha Gotama's mind, body, and it weighed very heavily on him, weighed very heavily on his heart, on his mind. And he w- as he was seated alone under this very sweet-smelling rose apple tree reflecting deeply on this scene before him he suddenly entered into a very profound experience of deep concentration and a profound experience of insight of understanding in his six-year-old self. Many years later, in his quest for uh, enlightenment, for liberation, as a young man, he spent a number of years living with extreme austerity. It's said that he ate one grain of rice a day for some time. And after doing this for some years, he remembered this scene of his childhood. And this profound experience that he had during this time, during his childhood. And this memory filled him with uh, tremendous energy and a sureness and a resolve to, again, sit. To sit quietly and press forward into a deep meditation until he reached full understanding, true freedom. No one told him these understandings. No one sort of bestowed the truth upon him. And so just as it was for Siddhartha Gautama, it's the same for us. It's really through the power of our own awareness, with a great interest and a great energy, and taking the time to look deeply at our own experience of body and mind and heart, taking this time to develop a concentrated clarity of awareness through which we can see and experience the true nature of things, how it is. This is really what brings the deepest happiness. This is what brings us a sense of true freedom and ease. This is what brings a sense of connection, deep connection and compassion with all that lives. One of my teachers, Upandita, a Burmese monk, says that this practice is about becoming a real human being. In this high place, it's as simple as this. Leave everything you know behind. Step toward the cold surface. Say the old prayer of love and open both arms. There are three pillars uh, that hold up this practice, these teachings. Three basic foundations, one of which I spoke about the first night of the retreat Sila, um, a Pali word for living with the moral sensitivity, ethical relationship to life. I'd like to talk this evening some about the second two foundations, the second two pillars of practice. The second foundation of these teachings, of this practice, is the development of concentration. The Pali word for this is samadhi. This kind of concentration isn't really exactly our everyday, ordinary kind of concentration. And we've spent five days or four and a half days with the metta practice deepening in this concentration as we open our hearts. And as you're beginning to find out it's the process of gathering in, gathering in and developing, gathering together the energy, the potential or the potential energy of our mind. Gathering it all in, which is ordinarily quite dispersed as you may have noticed. So we begin to kind of rein the mind in, from all of its myriad distractions. Begin to focus it in order to see clearly. We've been doing this with the metta practice, the focus being of a particular nature. It's a power of mind that we've been developing. And as we know, our minds can be very scattered. And when we sit down at a retreat like this to do something that seems so simple, repeat a few phrases one after the other. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Such a simple thing to do, you know. Or pay attention to our breath as we're going to begin to explore more and other body-mind experiences. But just a breath, for instance. So simple, to be with one breath completely, from its beginning all the way through to the end. And maybe we feel two breaths and then our mind is off to who knows where. You know, the mountains, the ocean, work, yesterday, tomorrow, ten years ago, next year. During this five days together you may have Uh, peeked (laughs) and looked around at the room and seen everybody sitting, looking so peaceful. All Buddhas sitting here. Mm -hmm. All different shapes, sizes. Everyone looking so peaceful, so tranquil. Except me when I was looking around, you know, you think, we feel. If we put a loudspeaker if there was a loudspeaker in everybody's mind, all these Buddhas sitting here, it would be deafening. It would be absolutely deafening. There's an enormous amount going on inside and it's natural. This is how the mind is, the mind thinks. Thoughts come, thoughts go. Thoughts come, thoughts go. It's when we're swept away, when we're lost, when we're not aware when we're attached to what's going on in our mind, in our heart, in our body. That's when we lose touch with the immediacy. We lose touch with this deep intimacy, the deepest intimacy, the truth of our experience. When we're swept away, when we're lost, when we're caught in a thought, attached to and perpetuating we lose touch with the present moment. And so we begin by developing a focus of attention. We begin by learning to deepen our concentration. This power of mind, this focusing power of mind. And we come back again and again and again and again to the present moment. So that all of our energy isn't used up, or usurped in a sense, or swept away uh, by these strong energies, thoughts, feelings, emotions that move through our mind. The energies of wanting, desiring, clinging to this or that, the energies of aversion, of fear of anger of not wanting of pushing away we just keep coming back coming back and coming back to a breath to a sensation in the body it's very simple actually so that all of our energy isn't used up in unconscious ways unaware ways we practice simple presence so that we learn how to gather back the power of our mind returning to this very moment so that we're actually able to see then what is taking place what's going on with this strength of mind, this power of mind we're then able to pay attention to a vaster and vaster range of our experience. As concentration deepens there's a a kind of calmness and a tranquility that I know some of you are beginning to touch that begins to settle in. There's a kind, It's kind of a sweetness. And in Pali that's called sukha. Sweetness. There's also, as concentration deepens, experiences of uh, pleasant experiences. Um, the sukhas pleasant, the experiences of various sensations in the body that are very pleasant, very delightful, so to say. That's called piti. And those feed the concentration, in a sense. And so we keep going and we keep deepening. We've touched some of that. I come into the room now, into the hall, and I sense this sukha. There's sukha in the the air here. (laughs) Sweetness. We've all learned and developed many, many habits, physical, mental habits, that actually bind us, that inhibit us, that limit us, that keep us closed off from the incredibly vast range of possibilities. They keep us closed off to experience, closed off from the awareness of knowing so much of what we were already experiencing in our life in our body, in our hearts, and so we practice. We practice to see clearly through these veils, so to say, and we practice to actually see these veils themselves clearly. The veils that cloud our direct experience, the immediate experience of life, the veils of judgments, Habits, desires, fears, all of these conditioned habits that we live out of, and often quite un- automatically, quite unconsciously, we begin to see those <clears throat> clearly. A Thai uh, teacher, wonderful Thai teacher with a tremendous energy. He's no longer alive, but his energy is still tremendous. <laughs> Ajahn Chah uh, said, To concentrate the mind is like turning on the switch, and wisdom is the resulting light. Without the switch, there is no light. Concentration is the empty bowl, and wisdom the food that fills it and makes the meal. So the second pillar or foundation of practice of the teachings, concentration. The third pillar of this practice, this meditation practice, is wisdom or understanding, insight. The Pali word is panya. In order to come to wisdom, to open to wisdom, to insight, we practice what's called mindfulness. Mindfulness has kind of become a household word these days. It's all over the place. What is it? What is it really? What makes mindfulness a spiritual practice? I mean, it's used in very casual ways. It, the word comes from these teachings and this practice. So what is it? It's a non-judging, this is clear mindfulness, a non-judging, non-grasping, non-rejecting orientation towards the present moment. And it's an orientation or a relationship to the present moment that makes room, it creates, creates an openness, the spaciousness of heart and mind for calmness, for clarity, and a true understanding, insight, wisdom to arise in a very natural way. It inevitably does. We don't have to do anything to make it happen. I'm going to repeat that. Mindfulness is a non-judging, non-grasping, non-rejecting orientation to the present moment. Sounds Actually, I was going to say it sounds easy, but it sounds difficult, actually. (laughs) We don't have to do anything about trying to find the truth. It is a natural arising phenomena, a natural arising happening. It's actually not very far away. In fact, it's not far away at all. It's ever-present. It's not something we have to try to attain. This is from Dogen, Zen teacher that I love a lot, who's not alive anymore either, but whose energy also still is very much present. Truth is perfect and complete in itself. It's not something newly discovered. It has always existed. Truth is not far away, it's ever-present, it's not something to be attained since not one of your steps leads away from it. When you have thrown off your ideas, your ideas as to mind and body, the original truth will fully appear. Insight meditation is simply the expression of truth. Therefore, longing and striving are not the true attitudes of insight meditation. Leave everything you know behind. Step toward the the cold surface. Say the old prayer of love and open both arms. Those who come with empty hands will stare into the lake, astonished. In this environment of safety, of care, of respect, this very sweet place. We have the opportunity to come to know ourselves completely. No part left out. We have the opportunity to come to know the truth of who we are. We have the opportunity to come home to ourselves, To come home to the truth of ourselves. We have the opportunity to let go of who we think we are, who we think we've always been, or who we think we're supposed to be, or who we think we're not supposed to be. We have the opportunity to let go of how we think it all is, or could be, or should be. We have the opportunity to be in what is called beginner's mind. If we think we know everything, if we think we know how everything is or isn't or is supposed to be, if we think we're experts, there's very, very little possibility. Maybe none if we're beginners over and over and over again, the possibilities are endless, boundless. Our conditioning is so strong, so pervasive, and it can be powerfully separating, separating us from the truth of our self, our interconnectedness, our interbeingness. In our very everyday, ordinary, experiences, the kind of conditioning that comes in our very everyday, ordinary, seemingly inconsequential experiences. There's a story um, about a monk during the time of the Buddha who came from a very, very wealthy family. And the other monks used to tease him by asking him when the rice would come for dinner, a huge mound of rice they'd say to him, where did this come from? And he'd say, from a golden bowl. Because that's how he'd always been served rice. That's how he ever, never saw rice come any other way. When the milk would come, they would say, where did this come from? And he would say, from a silver pitcher. Strong conditioning. He believed that. On the other side of it, many years ago I was uh, co-managing a educational farm in Michigan. And busloads of children would come in from the inner city to see farm life. And we would do what we called a farm show. We'd bring the children into the barn and there'd be cows. and. Uh, goats and sheep and they'd all be sitting in this kind of bleacher seats and the animals and uh, the farmer in front and one of the questions that would be asked would be um, where where does your milk and your cheese and your butter come from and inevitably some child and not as a joke would say comes from the store. The milk comes from the carton. And that wasn't to be sarcastic. That was where it came from. And here were the cows in front of them, the sheep and the animals. The butter comes from the package. Where does your sweater come from, the wool for your sweater? From the store. comes from the store. And so what we would do with these children to um, decondition them. First of all, milk the cow and put the milk in a little jar, a baby food jar. Put the top on tight. There might be a hundred children and maybe some parents and teachers in in the room. And as the farm show went on, we'd give the little bottle of milk to the child on the first row and say, shake it a whole bunch of times, then pass it on. Everybody shake it a whole bunch of times and pass it on, pass it on, pass it on. And we'd milk the cow. and um, By the time we finished part of the show, the little bottle would come back and the farmer would hold it up and pour out this very thin, watery-looking, sort of milky stuff. And There'd be a big chunk of butter in the jar. And the kids would be amazed. This is what the butter comes from. They made butter. Then we'd shear the sheep and spin with an apple and a pencil, spinning wheel, spin the wool into yarn and knit a few a few rows or with a knitting needle. This is where your sweater comes from. Deconditioning. Connecting. Connecting to life, the interconnectedness of life. Many years ago I I was in Nepal, I lived in in Asia for about a year and a half, and my son came over at one point to visit me and we went trekking in the mountains up in Nepal and we had uh, a guide with us. It was just the three of us. My son was about, I think, 18 at the time maybe, and uh, the guide was somewhere between my age and my son's age. And he and my son became quite friendly. The three of us were it was very comfortable. And he, so the guy took us hiking. We hiked for a couple of weeks, uh, trekking up in the mountains. And he would take us to stay at friends' houses along the way where he knew many people. And he always introduced us as um, Amma. I was Amma. And my son was Sora. Amma, mama, mother, and Sora, son. And everybody he introduced us to called us Amma and Sora. And immediately there was this connection. They called me Mother or Ma or Mama. I mean, whatever, however they, Amma. And Son was Son. And we were family immediately as we came into all these strange, strangers' homes. We were st- immediately not strangers because we were Mother and Son. And it wasn't a directing a term at us. It was a bringing us in. A friend, a student at IMS, uh, the meditation center in Berry, where I lived, lived in Thailand for many years, and she told me that in Thailand, people who people relate to each other differently than we do in many ways, and there's a conditioning that happens that isn't separating, like Amma and Sora. Um, a younger woman may call an older woman, older sister or mother. Uh, a man may call a younger man, younger brother. And that's how they address each other, younger sister, older sister, mom, mama, younger brother. Thich Nhat Hanh, a Vietnamese monk, is called grandpa monk. He's not the monk over there, he's Grandpa Monk, here, the heart. So conditioning is very strong in very ordinary ways. This beginner's mind, this (laughs) leaving everything behind that you know, if you've ever been with young children, and I'm sure many of you have, they're great teachers of beginner's mind. My five, six-year-old, almost six-year-old granddaughter is a very wonderful, delightful, and powerful teacher for me because still for her, so much is new. And so when I spend time with her, I get to tune into that kind of direct, away again. The possibility of that. The same way that six-year-old Siddhartha tuned in uh, during that spring plowing festival. And we have the possibility here, the opportunity in our retreat, In this silence that holds us to touch this wakefulness, this fearlessness, really, of just being, just simply being in a moment, just naturally being in a moment, undistracted and not separate from anything, it's an incredibly simple and actually an incredibly radical possibility, being just being naturally with ourselves at ease with things just as they are not separating ourselves not closing off just being with life as it manifests in us and through us this is a poem from a, a Native American woman from Canada it's called Humans Humans are made to love. Pay attention to every little thing. Everything is important. Everything that is important is done in passion. Sometimes the passion is bad as in anger or depression. But when passion is good as in love, whether it's bad or good as in love, pay attention to every little thing. Because you are what you are and love is important. Maybe that's what's wrong with humans today. Did you ever see a tree trying to be a lion? This is from a book called The Way of Tea by Yanagi. They saw, before all else they saw, they were able to see. Ancient mysteries flew from this wellspring of seeing. And so we pay attention to a whole range of experience. Things that we normally do very mechanically. Breathing, walking, eating. We pay attention to things that are pleasant things that are wonderful and easy to pay attention to. We pay attention to things that are unpleasant, things that are more difficult to experience. We open to all of it, all that we can know, no parts left out. We have the possibility of letting go of the stories, the myths that we have about ourselves, the various beliefs we have about ourselves, what we think we're capable of, or not capable of. How we define ourselves. Beliefs about our bodies, beliefs about our minds, beliefs about our emotions. And just simply pay attention to the experience just as it is. This is really the heart essence of of the practice and it's very simple, very simple, but not so easy. There are lots of ups and downs, just like there are in life, and it's actually life we're paying attention to. So it's just like life. Very natural. The practice isn't about coming to some state of bliss or out-of-body experience. These things may happen. but It's not about that. It's not about coming to some state and just staying there. It's not about imagining ourselves to be in some altered, quote, enlightened, unquote, state or about pretending. It's about the strength and about the clarity and about the purity of awareness which can go, which can be anywhere, which can be with anything. We can be mindful we can be present no matter what our experiences are and not be bound, not be driven by our reactions, by our reactions. It's in this light, very bright, luminous, very spacious quality of awareness, the innate qualities of awareness itself Spacious luminosity this is where we find freedom no matter what our experiences are it's our very right it's our due it's it's our due to be at ease with ourselves in our life to live gracefully just because we're alive just because we're here it's our birthright This silence that holds us, this spacious silence, is like the luminosity of awareness. It doesn't expect anything. It doesn't judge anything. It's just here. And we, in it, of it, part of it. So as this retreat goes on, and we begin to open into Vipassana practice, awareness practice. Vipassana, by the way, translates out of the Pali as clear seeing, seeing things as they are. Sometimes it's translated as special seeing. It's special but not special. Extraordinary but ordinary. So, take your time these next days as the retreat unfolds and open gently and that word again that Trudy and I have used so often, patiently, and let go of trying to control your experience. Notice if there is a trying to control and just let it be. Just pay attention, that word attention. Simply see. Simply be aware of whatever arises, whatever passes. I sometimes think of mindfulness as magic. The magician's magic, which is the way we usually think of magic, it's all done with illusion. The magic of mindfulness actually takes us through the illusion to reality. One of the aspects of Buddhism that attracted me very early on is that this is a practice, this meditation practice is what I sometimes call a come see for yourself practice. It's really a a process, a wonderful process of direct discovery We don't learn this through reading. We don't learn it intellectually through some kind of analysis. It's this amazing process of discovery, of surprise. And through this discovery, this investigation and discovery, the understanding that arises via our own experience, the insight that comes is very deep very real. Because it comes through our own experience. No one can take it away from us. And there's a kind of confidence and a faith that arises along with it as this process unfolds. A faith in the process itself as we as we take it in. It's very wonderful. It's really wonder-filled. A little poem by Rumi. Don't try to be the sun. Be a dust moat. Lunar moth. Love the candle. Taste your life. Put your shoes on upside down. Taste your life. Put your shoes on upside down. There's a few words I'd like to just uh, mention, or a few words that have uh, some important instruction for us as we go along and move into the awareness practice, into vipassana practice, insight practice. The first word is willingness. Very important. Qualities, I guess, is a better way. Qualities of, of heart and mind. The willingness, the real willingness to come close, so close to our experience, the really so close that we touch, touch our experience directly. The willingness to open, to look, to listen to our own sound. Remembering that, allowing that. And the second quality, that famous word that Trudy and I have said so many times, patience. We can't say it enough, it seems. Sometimes I think of patience as this will see attitude. We'll see, we'll see. Can we just be with we'll see? Don't know, we'll see. Patience. It's compassionate actually to be with don't know, we'll see. The beginner's mind that I spoke about. The patience that we're doing our best. There's an active aspect of patience that someone once called hastening slowly. Can we hasten slowly? Can we have the energy and interest of practice and the urgency of practice but hasten slowly? patiently. That patience to begin again and again and again. There's another aspect of patience that's very important, very compassionate. This aspect of patience where we go to our edge, but we don't go over it. We go to our edge with a very gentle determination, interest, energy. The edge actually keeps moving out as we practice. So we patiently go to it but not over it. Remembering that. Taking care of ourselves joyfully in this practice. Rainier Maria Rilke wrote about patience in his uh, book Letters to a Young Poet and I'd like to just read a little piece of that. Everything is gestation and then bringing forth to let each impression and each germ of a feeling come to completion wholly in itself in the dark in the inexpressible beyond the reach of one's own intelligence and await with deep humility the patience the birth hour of a new clarity that alone is living the artist's life in understanding as in creating there is no measuring with time no year matters and 10 years are nothing Being an artist means not reckoning and counting, but ripening like the tree which does not force its sap and stands confident in the storms of spring without the fear that after them may come no summer. It does come, but it comes only to the patient who are there as though eternity lay before them, so unconcernedly still and wide. I learn it daily, learn it with pain, to which I am grateful. Patience is everything. The third quality of heart and mind, which Trudy spoke about last night some on their journey, is courage. And as she said, it does take courage to walk the path in a culture where it's not particularly supported or encouraged. It takes a lot of courage. It also takes courage to honor our limitations. And not some image of who we think we are. But it takes courage to really be a friend to ourselves, Honor our limitations. We're often courageous in our honoring and being with a friend as I have spoken about in terms of our metta practice. More patient, more loving and can be with aspects of difficulty with a friend, courageously, more with others than with ourself. It's important in this practice that we be our own best friend. In a sense that's what it's about. In this, in these qualities of heart, willingness, patience, courage, there's a kind of trust that develops. And in all of this there's a tremendous energy of our liveliness that sustains it, sustains us. Tremendous energy of our liveliness that helps the truth of who we are flower into full blossom. And this energy of our liveliness is itself uh, the seeds of that truth. And it's what, and it's the practice that waters the seeds that help it to flower into full blossom. I'd like to end with a A Navajo Chant House made of dawn House made of evening light House made of the dark cloud House made of male rain House made of dark mist House made of female rain House made of pollen house made of grasshoppers. Dark cloud is at the door. A trail out of it is dark cloud. The zigzag lightning stands high upon it. An offering I make. Restore my feet for me. Restore my legs for me. Restore my body for me. Restore my mind for me. Restore my voice for me. This very day, take out your spell for me. Happily, I recover. Happily, my interior becomes cool. Happily, I go forth. My interior feeling cool, may I walk. No longer sore, may I walk. Impervious to pain, may I walk. With lively feelings, may I walk. As it used to be long ago, may I walk. Happily, may I walk. Happily, with abundant dark clouds, may I walk. Happily, with abundant showers, may I walk. Happily, with abundant plants, may I walk. Happily, on a trail of pollen, may I walk. Happily, may I walk. Being as it used to be, may it be beautiful behind me. May it be beautiful below me. May it be beautiful above me. May it be beautiful all around me. In beauty it is finished. In beauty it is finished. There in the cold light, reflecting pure snow, the true shape of your own face, Let's sit together for a couple of minutes.